I think we have not to go into too far and too much detail into this, but I think we have a lot to learn about these patients. Who is the proper patient to undergo this procedure? Who should be selected out and maybe undergo iliac vein stenting or combined stage treatments? Um, and how are we going to score these patients in a organized way, different from just a zero to 10 visual analog pain score to better assess their symptoms and their outcomes? With over 500,000 patients treated globally, Impact Admiral Drug Coated Balloon is the market leading DCB for treatment of femoropopliteal disease. Learn more about how Impact Admiral DCB can affect reintervention rates for patients with PAD by visiting medtronic.com forward slash five year DCB. You're listening to the Vascular Podcast from Radcliffe Vascular. Today's host is Associate Professor Kush Desai. Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Kush Desai. I'm an interventional radiologist from Northwestern University in Chicago. And uh, for this evening's podcast, uh, it is my distinct honor to present uh, to you a group of experts that really needs no introduction in the area of female pelvic venous disease. Um, we're going to be talking about the idea of getting on the same page uh, in, fem in female pelvic venous disease. And to anybody that treats these patients and takes care of these patients in any amount, they recognize the significant gaps that we have in our knowledge and, and how we carry about our daily practice uh, for these patients. So we're going to start off the podcast with, an, uh, with a little bit of news. Uh, we're going to cover a very recent article on this topic. And for that, I'm going to introduce my friend and colleague from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Ron Winokur, and then my other friend and colleague from uh, Cornell University in New York, Neil Kilnani. Ron and Neil. Thanks so much, Kush. Thanks for putting this together and getting this great panel together to um, discuss pelvic venous disorders and how important it is for us to address uh, taking care of these patients in an organized uh, and well thought out manner to get the best outcomes for these patients. Um, there's been a lot of activity in this space as far as trying to improve the understanding of these patients and the workup of these patients, the patient selection prior to interventions for these patients. And through a multi-society consensus panel, which most of the panel members here uh, were a part of, uh, we came to a lot of ideas on how to diagnose these patients and who should be selected for interventions. Very recently, there was a publication by Di Gregorio looking at a large volume, 520 subjects who underwent ovarian vein embolization or pelvic vein embolization. And I think that's been the newest piece of data that's come out that we should really analyze very carefully uh, prior to utilizing it as a methodology for treating all of our patients. And what they did is they looked at the visual analog scale pain score in those 520 patients who underwent ovarian vein and iliac vein embolization. Um, they did a retrospective single center study, excluding all patients who had any form of iliac vein compression. Um, so these were really isolated patients with ovarian vein reflux rather than combined disease of obstruction and reflux. And then they treated these patients with ovarian vein embolization using coils alone. And there wasn't treatment in this patient population, as far as I could tell, of the pelvic reservoir. Um, and so this was really, what is the outcome when you coil embolize the ovarian veins and internal iliac veins in these patients? 
And they had excellent outcomes using a visual analog pain score um, with a significant improvement in 82 to 100% um, of these patients, which is pretty consistent with what is out there from systematic reviews that were also recently published out in the literature. So I think we have not to go into too far and too much detail into this, but I think we have a lot to learn about these patients. Who is the proper patient to undergo this procedure? Who should be selected out and maybe undergo iliac vein stenting or combined stage treatments? Um, and how are we going to score these patients in a organized way different from just a zero to 10 visual analog pain score to better assess their symptoms and their outcomes? Great. Thanks, Ron. Neil, um, I wanted to ask you real quick, uh, does this does this data move the needle for you at all? Um, does it does it inform your practice in any meaningful way or different way that maybe it makes you realize or change something about how you approach these patients? Thanks, Kush. And again, thanks for uh, inviting me. I'm honored to be part of this panel. Um, I think there are a couple of interesting things that I gained from this paper. And then a couple of things that I feel like were missed opportunities and some concerns as well. In terms of what I got that probably helps inform me a bit, a little bit perhaps um, feeding into perhaps some of my biases is that it was as an observation, uh, the visual analog score improvements in this particular study were a bit better than what you had seen in a lot of the other uh, presentations that uh, have made it to publication over the last 15 or so years. And that may have something to do with the fact that the extent of embolization in these patients was high, higher. Um, in this case, um, they attempted uh, to embolize both ovarian and both, um, at least it seemed, the internal, the main internal iliac vein trunk. And they were successful in about 85% of the cases. And that may, you know, I'm not sure I can, I don't want to overinterpret that particular piece of data, but I think that may give us some insight into uh, perhaps the value of, of uh, carefully evaluating uh, all four potential pathways of reflux into the uh, plexuses of veins and the pelvis that could be responsible for pain. The other thing that I thought was very interesting is that they used as their selection, part of their selection criteria, transvaginal ultrasound, and they identified patients with varicosities in the periuterine, periovarian vaginal uh, and vaginal plexus that were bigger than six millimeters in diameter. And when they did venography using that as part of their uh, selection criteria, they found at least one ovarian vein was refluxing in each case. So I thought that was something that was a useful piece of information to help me in, in terms of moving along and in terms of recommendations. And then in addition, they also reported which was unique um, in the literature for this particular area, what they found in other areas uh, of health related to this pa these patients. So they reported on a fairly high incidence of lower extremity varicose veins, which we sort of knew about, as well as vulvar varicose veins, but they also commented on the high frequency of associated urinary symptoms, which I, you know, it's something that we see in chronic pelvic pain syndromes of other etiologies that we see uh, associated problems with bladder, bowel, and, and pelvic floor. But this is the first time I'd seen this in a, in a report looking at pelvic venous disorders. A couple of missed opportunities, though. Um, they, did four, they attempted four-vessel uh, angiography in, in each patient, and yet, uh, even though they were successful in 85% of the patients, they didn't report 
what they found on those venograms, how often veins were refluxing. Um, they also didn't, uh, which would have been a, a, a nice um, uh, epidemiologic piece of data uh, in, in this uh, selected population. As, as, and as um, Ron mentioned, they didn't report the prevalence of iliac vein and renal vein obstruction in this population. They only collected visual analog scale data. And we know that um, the patients who have this particular problem generally are affected in more domains than just pain. Um, And uh, they didn't really, even though they said in follow-up, they asked about these things, they didn't really address them. But to conclude that my, my big concern about this paper was that they reported a fairly high incidence of coils that were embolized to the lung. If you look specifically at their coil uh, embolization rate, it was at least 3.4% to the lung. And that was based on uh, chest x-rays that were done on what were primarily asymptomatic um, episodes of embolization. And so if they're basing their prevalence or the incidence of embolization on chest x-rays that were just ordered for other reasons, they may be very much underestimating how often coils embolize. And that's always been a concern um, with placing coils. They didn't see that with plugs. And I won't get into the distinction at this point. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, But that was a concerning number. And so on the basis of that, I'd certainly um, caution readers of this paper from uh, pursuing uh, routine embolization of the main internal iliac vein with coils, which is where it seemed like they put their coils. They didn't put their coils out uh, peripherally. Certainly, um, this this data does help us um, expand our knowledge, but it it's it's still just another case series, and it was a case series based only on visual analog scales. And it underscores the need for us to have comparators and to utilize better endpoints when we look at data. So I think. This has helped me in some ways in understanding some things, but it's, it's certainly left a lot of questions unanswered. Uh, thanks, Neil. I mean, this is a great segue to our panel discussion. And I'd like to also introduce uh, Kathy Gibson from Lake Washington Vascular in Bellevue, Washington, and then Mark Meisner from the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, two people who need no introduction in this space and disease process. Kathy, I'm, I'm going to ask you the first question or ask you to start with the first question that I have, uh, which really hits on what Neil just concluded with, which is how do you objectively assess these patients? That's a significant knowledge gap we have. What do you use to grade them? And then how do you work them up uh, with imaging? What do you use in your practice? Great. Yeah, well, I'll actually start with the second thing that you asked me because it's easier. Uh, So, you know, I think a good history is really important, um, including previous gynecologic issues, previous pregnancies. Uh, Any patient that I have that I'm suspicious of pelvic venous reflux. If they have not had a good gynecologic examination, they need to see a gynecologist first. So I start with that. Um, And then kind of trying to determine whether or not the patient's symptoms fit with what we expect for a patient with chronic pelvic pain that has a venous cause. So pelvic heaviness, aching, throbbing, um, sometimes urinary symptoms, dyspareunia. A lot of patients in my practice anyway feel worse after they exercise about a half hour later in terms of their pelvis. So figuring out whether the pattern fits, looking in their vulva, looking in the uh, legs for uh, the pattern that we see from pelvic venous disease. And then in terms of imaging workup, 
in I'm, I'm very fortunate that we have uh, trained several uh, RVTs that can do a very good evaluation. And we use the method, actually, Mark was an author on the paper that Nikos Labropoulos wrote that's in phlebology that's kind of step-by-step how to image patients. We do not use transvaginal ultrasound in our practice. Um, I know that there's a lot of practices that do that, but we don't have that availability. And cross-sectional imaging, uh, we used to do more regularly, and we're doing it now uh, only if there's something um, that we cannot pick up on our uh, transabdominal ultrasound or something suspicious. However, many of these patients have had previous workup by a gynecologist that may have also included, for example, laparoscopy. So that's kind of our our workup uh, diagnostically. And then we usually do venography with intent to treat, although sometimes um, we do diagnostic venography if that's what we need to do first to get insurance approval about what we're specifically planning to do. And we're finding, unfortunately, that that is sometimes a requirement of some, uh, some insurance plans. Uh, In terms of outcome measures, objectively, there's not a lot that we have right now specific for this problem other than a visual analog scale. So I, you know, try to be very diligent about recording symptoms ahead of time um, and then asking about those same symptoms during recovery. Um, And then visual analog pain scale, again, is about the only thing that we have that's kind of a number that we can throw on things before and after. However, um, the work group that we're working on, and Ron in particular is has an interest in, is um, doing some, something to help us develop a better uh, tool, or I guess we all have interest in that, that is a more patient-specific outcome measure for this disease process. Great, Kathy. You know, um, Mark, I want to ask you a quick question about the imaging bit, since you do have a lot of experience with this and you authored many papers, with, uh, including with uh, Nikos, whom we all know well. Uh, I've heard that the position of a patient can markedly affect the outcome of their imaging. I mean, these patients reflux typically when they're upright, and yet most of the time we do our imaging supine. Is that something that's borne out in your practice? That's the first question. The second question I have is, do you ever use more advanced imaging techniques and by advanced I probably am really referring to magnetic resonance techniques, which is something that the the three radiologists, myself included on this call, are are familiar with. Thanks, Kush, and thanks for inviting me to participate um, today. So our standard study is done in a fairly steep, about 30-degree reverse Trendelenburg position, um, looking at the, the ovarian veins in both internal iliac veins. And you know, sometimes it does make a difference, particularly um, in evaluating people demographically who you are concerned may have a primary left renal vein compression or less so, but to some extent, even a common iliac vein compression. So if, if there's, um, if in that steep reverse Trendelenburg position, if, if we find evidence particularly of a renal vein compression, we will obviously uh, oftentimes stand the patient up or evaluate them in an acubitus position to just see how that renal vein compression um, changes. But as and as our technologist will will tell you, and evaluating an ovarian vein in an upright position is a fairly um, uh, cumbersome thing to do, um, particularly if you're relying on Valsalva or any anything else like that. So typically, we do not. Um, do that portion of the study standing up, although we will have patients stand up if there is concern for a compression lesion that may change um, dependent on position. 
And as far as cross-sectional imaging goes, um, we uh, our protocol is, is pretty similar to Kathy's in that we really only reserve cross-sectional imaging if um, the way forward isn't um, specifically um, defined by ultrasonography. And I would say in about 90% of patients, um, the next step as far as um, venography and intervention goes is pretty well defined by um, ultrasound and we don't stop in the middle for cross-sectional imaging. That being said, there are occasional patients where um, the combination of their clinical presentation and their ultrasound are maybe inconsistent and we will get cross-sectional imaging in those cases, but that is the minority of patients and really rely on ultrasound. And if, as I always say, if you're um, starting this to, to build a big practice of this, your efforts are much better spent training your technologists to do good ultrasound than there are they are anywhere else in the field. It really is the starting point, um, you know, and if you, if you ask somebody 20 years ago, do you need cross-sectional imaging to manage uh, uh, symptomatic varicose veins of the lower extremities, you'd be laughed at. And I, I think we'll probably be that as people's ultrasound skills improve in 20 years, we'll be that same place here in that just, I think with good ultrasound, your um, the direction forward is, is pretty clear in 90% of patients. Yeah, that's great. You know, um, MR venography is something that's certainly talked about in the radiology community. Um, very expensive, has uh, operator and sort of technical expertise that's required. And um, certainly as we look to save cost in the healthcare system, using ultrasound and having ultrasound technicians trained uh, to do certain, this type of imaging is, is going to be very valuable as we recognize more and more of these patients. I'd like to briefly move on uh, to, to the next question, solicit the opinion of the whole panel, and I'll start with Ron. Uh, Ron, when you're treating a patient with uncompensated reflux, you know, primarily ovarian reflux, but certainly hypogastric or internal iliac reflux as well, how do you typically perform the treatment? And I'm just going to go um, one by one through the panel members of what catheters do you use, what kind of embolics, sclerosins do you use to perform your treatment? Thanks, Kush. Um, so my my typical approach for embolization and, and pelvic vein embolization is I'd like to approach it from the internal jugular vein. I find the angles of getting into both ovarian veins and both internal iliac veins is easier from the IJ approach working downward than it is using reverse curve catheters. I'm sure there are people on this panel who will say exactly the opposite. And it I think what I teach my trainees and my residents is to do what you feel comfortable with and try each way and, and find the tools that work best for you. Um, one of the things that I think is critically important to treatment of these patients is treating the pelvic reservoir um, and treating it completely. And I know Mark agrees with this statement and, and I, I'm sure he'll say the same thing, but trying to get as much sclerosin into that pelvic reservoir as possible. And so as a result, I get a, an occlusion balloon into the ovarian veins to be occlusive, to pack the pelvic reservoir um, with embolic as best as I can. I use a cocktail that is a mixture of uh, sodium tetradecal sulfate, contrast, and gel foam slurry. Um, so I use a half a brick of gel foam, uh, 16 cc's of contrast, and 4 mLs of 3% STS mixed together to make a sclerosing cocktail, so to speak, that then I can fill into that reservoir and allow it to dwell for five minutes before taking the balloon down and coiling the ovarian vein on the way out. And I'll do that on 
for both ovarian veins as long as I can get into the right ovarian vein and I'll do everything I can to treat it at that initial treatment uh, procedure. And then I'll take that occlusion balloon into both internal iliac veins. And if there are any residual varicosities or residual veins that I can identify that are part of that same pelvic reservoir, I'll inject more of that sclerosin cocktail through the occlusion balloon into the pelvic reservoir. Um, I will not coil, much like the conversation we were having that, doc, that Neil pointed out um, about coil migration in the DiGregorio study, and that's my biggest concern. And so I've always been hesitant to coil embolize the internal iliac veins due to a high risk of coil migration in that particular anatomy. And so if I need to treat the pelvic reservoir more from the internal iliacs, I'll use that occlusion balloon again and more of that sclerosin cocktail into those uh, internal iliac vein branches. Neil did, uh, or sorry, uh, Mark, did Ron steal your thunder? Is that basically how you do it? Or are there, are there slight variations to how you proceed with this? Uh, you know, I, I, for most of my career, have done it exactly like um, Ron has described. I, I definitely prefer an internal iliac or an internal jugular approach is, uh, for the same reasons Ron outlined. And, and for probably 15 years, my approach has been left ovarian, right ovarian, both internal iliacs. And then for about the last six months, um, and this was largely driven by the fact that um, unlike the the, the the paper Neil discussed, um, uh, I, I selectively, I study every vein and inject contrast in every vein, but only treat the veins that I see varices in. And, and I noticed that over time, oftentimes I, I would go down and look at the internal iliacs and wouldn't see anything after embolizing the ovarians and, and a moderate number of patients would come back with recurrent symptoms. And so over the last six months or so, I've revised the strategy I use a little bit where I do the internal iliac veins first. And, and I would say in virtually all patients, you see varices coming off the internal iliac vein if you study them first. And what I've found is it's a lot easier to identify the connections, um, particularly you know cannulating the anterior division of um, the internal iliac veins. And it, it's important to notice that, that I mean, people can have... Um, two trunks of the internal iliac vein. Usually if there's two trunks, the more proximal, more central one um, sort of feeds the posterior um, division and the, and the more uh, peripheral one, the anterior division. But you want to get into that anterior um, uh, division and particularly into the internal pudendal vein and study it with balloon occlusion venography. And you will virtually always see varices, usually fed by the uterine vein, sometimes the vaginal vein, and can... Um, you know, take care of those varices first. And, and it's very interesting. And I think this is the problem with people who do single vein embolization. Virtually the whole time, if you, if you then go back and do the ovarian veins, you always find residual varices um, in the ovarian plexus. And I think that's just because in contrast to what people say, but isn't true, um, you do not always um, reflux contrast through the broad ligament um, from the internal iliac veins to the ovarian veins and vice versa. You don't always um, reflux um, sclerosant from the ovarian plexus to the uterovaginal venous plexus. Um, so in contrast to when I was studying the ovarian veins first and then looking at the internal iliacs, where oftentimes I wouldn't see things in the internal iliacs, I, I now do the internal iliacs first and go back and do the ovarians, and you always find stuff in the ovarian veins afterwards. So 
I can I point to hundreds of patients who um, I've done that in. I haven't, but I, I over the last six months or so, I, I have noticed I find a lot more, and the extent of my embolization is a lot more if I do the internal iliacs first. That's great, Neil. Do you have a different way of uh, approaching these patients? Are you doing IJ access as well and treating all four vessels? I'm not doing too many, I'm not doing the procedures anymore. Sometimes I Ron Ron worked with me and Ron was sort of the, the person involved. But I I do think the internal jugular vein offers a lot of advantages. I do want to just comment quickly on the on what Mark just said. I thought that was very interesting. Um, certainly. Um, what 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 he and I guess Ron and probably all four, all five of us would would promote, which is the obliteration of the the the, the variceal plexuses in the pelvis. At this point, is anecdotal, but it it seems it seems pretty um, important to do. Um, and by analogy, it it it's very much like with the lower extremity veins, patients' symptoms and patients' functional. Um, performance of their lower extremity is better when you ablate the saphenous vein and eliminate the varicosities, the venous reservoir. And by analogy, that seems to make sense to me in the pelvis. And so although, as an example, the DiGregorio paper didn't invo- uh, didn't include that portion of, uh, of the procedure, the ablation of the variceal reservoir, it makes sense. And if you're going to do it, do it as thoroughly as you possibly can. So I like what Mark just said. Um, and, uh, and I do think the jugular vein makes it easier to do most of these interventions, particularly, uh, in the internal iliac vein, um, and its branches. You know, an interesting thing that I've come across recently is some of these embolization procedures, particularly if you're doing four vessels, um, can get long and the patient's bladders can get quite full. And I've actually noticed that that can distort and potentially make things that look like varices. That, that aren't varices look like varices. So I'm, I'm curious if anyone has seen that. Uh, Kathy, in addition to your approach, is, uh, have, you, have you noticed this or is this, uh, am, I, am I making something up here? Um, no, I haven't noticed that, but I'm going to start looking now. Because uh, certainly, you know, I mean, I think that that would be a, a you know, we make a point of having them empty their bladder uh, before uh, beforehand. And, but I will, I'll pay attention now. So I would say, you know, Mark actually taught me how to do this procedure. So Mostly I do what he does, but how I used to do it, I do it kind of like how Ron did. And, but with a couple differences, one is I don't use a gel foam slurry. I use sotradecol mixed with carbon dioxide. So I make foam. Um, and I do wait like three to five minutes. I think if you get impatient and keep injecting with contrast, you have to kind of wait uh, for the veins to go into spasm. And I think that the other thing to look for is if you kind of look in the area after three to five minutes, you'll see kind of a ground glass appearance um, of the foam. And that's one thing I look for too. But I do use an occlusion balloon. I like going from the neck. I think it's much more stable. The one difference, if I am using IVIS, which I will do if I'm uh, concerned about compressions that I want to look at, one kind of helpful hint I think for getting into the right ovarian vein, which I'm, I'm not as good at getting into it as Mark, although I, I am learning and getting better, is if you're using IVIS for some reason and having problems getting in the um, ovarian vein, you can actually run the IVIS up from, one of, from a groin approach and usually find the right ovarian vein with IVIS 
and direct your catheter based on the IVUS from the neck. So if I'm having trouble, that's something I sometimes do if I have the IVUS catheter open anyway. I don't use it if I don't have the IVUS catheter open to look for compressions, but that's something that I found has been very helpful in finding the right ovarian vein and increases the chances that you're going to find it and be able to cannulate it. Great, Kathy. I think uh, I, I do my embolizations with sclerosin very similar to you. I do basically a modified Tassari method, carbon dioxide, 3% sotradecol foam, um, you know, about nine cc's of carbon dioxide to one ml, one cc of, of uh, sotradecol and rapidly foam it through a three-way and then use it to displace the contrast column. I, I just realized I'm the only person on this call that still does it from the groin. Um, I actually use a seven French gonadal catheter for the left uh, falls right in, has super stable access. I can also use it to get into hypos on the left, not as easily on the right. And then for the right, I typically use a Simmons 1 catheter. Um, I have nothing against the neck. It, I think it's just a holdover from the way I was trained and sort of the, the, the way I've done it. But it shows you that there's a lot of different ways to approach this. Um, but, you know, Kathy brought up an interesting point, uh, using IBIS to look for niliac vein lesion. And that's going to bring up something that's really been a, to- a hot topic of discussion in female pelvic venous diseases, which is what do you do when patients have mixed disease? And I'm going to start with Mark. Let's say they have both reflux, ovarian hypogastric reflux, and an iliac vein obstruction, but they don't have leg symptoms. Are these patients that should be stented first? Because that's certainly the, the, the discourse that we're seeing from a lot of authors, a, a lot of different centers. Well, and the answer, Kush, to, to that is two, two, twofold. First of all, the centers you see that are promulgating this approach um, don't do detailed venography and embolize all four veins if there is are varices identified in all four veins. They, it, it's it's a comparison of common iliac vein stenting to isolated. Um, left ovarian vein embolization. And I think that's just a sham comparison. So I think I would be very careful. And the other thing to look at is the patient population that um, the patient population that you see in your practice is very, very important. And if you look at the centers that are promulgating iliac stenting, they tend tend to be a a much older population um, and um, tend to have a very high proportion of leg symptoms. Which, which is fine if that's your practice. That is not my practice where most of the patients I see coming in with chronic pelvic pain um, have isolated pelvic pain without much leg symptoms, and without many leg symptoms, and most of them are young multiparous women. So in answer to that, first of all, start with the history. Um, primary ovarian vein, internal iliac vein reflux is fairly rare in nulliparous women. If you've never been pregnant, think twice about whether this is really a primary ovarian internal iliac vein incompetence. The second thing is um, menopausal status. You know, if they're postmenopausal, I mean, most primary ovarian vein symptoms, they may not resolve completely, but get better with menopause. And so if you have a postmenopausal woman, certainly can occur that they have primary ovarian vein incompetence. And I've seen many patients who have that but at least think twice about it in, in directing your intervention in a patient who has both compression and um, uh, ovarian vein incompetence. So the history should guide you largely with that. Now, to get back to your particular question of um, the patient who has no leg symptoms and has concurrent ovarian vein reflux and a compression on, say, ultrasound or some other imaging modality, 
I think you have to rely largely on what you see on venography. If you inject um, the, the, from the common femoral vein, whether you're coming from the neck or from the groin, doesn't matter. And you don't see um, vigorous reflux that is actually filling varicosities, not just the main trunk of the internal iliac vein, but varicosities. I think you have to think twice about whether that really is a compression lesion. And we saw this presented at, a at the ABLS Congress where um, there was a paper presented where they kept showing pictures of where they were talking about reflux into the pelvic reservoir, which really all they were showing was um, reflux into the main trunk of um, the internal iliac vein and particularly into the posterior um, uh, tributaries of the internal iliac vein. They were showing a lot of lateral sacral branches and things. And in none of the pictures that were shown were actually varices being filled. So rely on venography. You should see um, more than just flash reflux in the main trunk of the internal iliac vein or the lateral sacral veins if you're injecting um, from the groin and you think it's a, an iliac vein compression. So I think that's how I would decide is a combination of demographics, the patient's presentation, and um, what their um, common femoral injection looks like um, as far as uh, is this really an obstruction or is this an epiphenomenon of IVUS? And I think IVUS is one of the most dangerous things there is with this. I, I use IVUS on every case. I think it's absolutely necessary for iliac stenting. But, you know, just because you see a greater than 50% compression on IVUS uh, doesn't mean that you should stent that rather than embolize their ovarian veins. You have to think about it a little bit. Kathy? Yeah. So what I was, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. So the two, the two groups that you're, that you should raise your suspicion that it's obstructive are nulliparous women and women past menopause. But what I was going to also say is the difference in the flow pattern between an obstruction and reflux. So if you're look, talking about dilated veins in the pelvis, if there is not a significant ovarian reflux component, if it's primarily obstruction, the flow pattern across the pelvis will be rapid because the blood is flowing according to a pressure gradient. If it's reflux predominant, you will see contrast dwell in the pelvis for a long period of time. So for example, if you inject a left ovarian vein um, in a nulliparous woman where there's reflux and it rapidly crosses the pelvis and drains either via the uh, internal iliac on the other side or the right ovarian vein, this is a sign that they have a significant left renal vein um, lesion. And the same thing if you're injecting the common femoral, like Mark said, if it's not significant, um, then you're not going to see rapid flow across. Uh, so I think that the, the flow pattern is really important. So you can't do, like Mark said, you can't have the IVUS in a vacuum. You need IVUS and venography with flow pattern being complements to each other to try to figure out whether this is primarily compression or reflux. And in some people, you have both, but you need to be able to figure that out. And um, it's not always black and white. Yeah, I mean, there's so little that's black and white about this. And Ron, do you ever find yourself in a situation where placing the stent first makes sense? Yeah, I, th I agree with you, Kush. It's pretty much never black and white. It's always challenging. And we're trying to define physiology through anatomic findings. So we're looking at ultrasound and seeing compression. We're looking at uh, IVUS and seeing compression. And our only 
model of physiology, as Kathy was saying, is what is the flow pattern? How is the contrast flowing through the obstruction? Are we seeing filling of the pelvic reservoir, filling of varices and stasis within the pelvis? Because that's really what we think the pathophysiology of pelvic venous disorders is that's leading to pain, dilated, overpressurized veins within the pelvis. And if we can explain that from the anatomic compression, then we shouldn't be treating that anatomic compression. Um, I think going back to your question, Kush, I think it's challenging in those populations. And when I have a patient who's very young, let's say they're in their early 20s or mid 20s, they're nulliparous, and they don't have ovarian vein reflux, and they're still having chronic pelvic pain, and I find an iliac vein compression, I'm very cautious up front with those patients. And I'm um, I explain very clearly what we know and what we don't know as far as iliac vein stenting. And Ivis almost always will prove the compression that I see on ultrasound. It'll almost always give me a significant area reduction that's enough to stent the patient. Um, but we have to be thoughtful and cautious and make sure patients are on board with doing something like that at a young age. I mean, I think for me, it comes, uh, I'm very cautious about stent placement personally. Um, if it's a, if it's a patient I've done embolization on or, or has mixed disease, I usually perform embolization first, unless they have profound, uh, leg symptoms, venous claudication, severe swelling, where it just would make sense if that patient didn't have pelvic venous disease that we would treat the leg, but that's not terribly common. Um, most of the time these patients are presenting with a pressurized pelvic reservoir. And so I always uh, default to personally default to embolization first and really let that all work and make sure I've completely treated the pelvic reservoir as Mark, Kathy, uh, Ron and Neil have said on, throughout this, uh, throughout this podcast. And then after that, if it's persistent, then we discuss the stent. So that's that, I think that's an approach that probably, uh, makes the most sense, uh, based on what we know so far. Neil, I want to ask you the next question is how do we follow these patients? Um, what, how do we objectively document that these patients have gotten better, haven't gotten better, need something else? Kathy touched on this a bit before in the sense that you, you usually develop a, a, you know, sort of a qualitative sense of what their primary concerns were before the procedure. Um, perhaps the only thing I would, you know, expand that a bit is I would probably try to make that as objective as possible. Um, certainly, the use of the visual analog scale is 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 the the main thing that that we talk about, um, but um, there are other questions. Although we don't have a true quality of life tool for pelvic venous disorders or chronic pelvic pain of venous etiology, there are some questions from the Promise database and from a few other uh, sources that we could utilize to uh, establish a baseline, and then ask the ask the same questions again in the follow-up. Um, and, and probably also added to this is probably to some extent a, um, some sort of general survey of general quality, quality of life, uh, short form type uh, questionnaire. Now, certainly the, the more research oriented you are, the more objective you need to be. Um, but I think, I think doing something like that is important. I also, I also think you know, we need to be careful about some of the other concurrent problems that exist in these patients. So making sure um, we, we know that, that depression is very common in patients who've had pain for a long time. And uh, 
many of the patients that we see, and certainly most, if not all the patients we treat, um, have had these pain conditions for quite some time. And secondary depression is, is not an unusual thing. So getting a sense of um, the level of um, depression objectively as possible, and then potentially even implementing treatment for that concurrent to the treatment of the pelvic venous disorder is, is also valuable. And then being sure to address some of the other types of symptoms that we find in these patients. Many of these patients become sensitized. They're, they're neurologic, psychologic, um, I guess, uh, systems are, are affected uh, by the chronic pelvic pain much as they are in other etiologies. And so the phenotype of some of the patients that we encounter who have pelvic venous disorders or chronic pelvic pain in general is that they often have complaints that um, expand beyond the organ that's actually the primary pain generator. So getting a sense of what's going on in those other organs and then potentially if they don't respond to what you think was the best thing to do for them first, uh, engage consultants in other specialties to help um, with working out what might be uh, a true organic problem in one of those other areas or maybe a manifestation of a neuropsychologic issue that requires more mental health uh, professional care. So um, that's sort of a overview of how I look at these patients. I think Neil brings up a critical point, which is that these patients often have multiple facets to their symptomatology. So you can't be narrow in your scope and vision um, as to what, as to just looking at the plumbing and trying to treat the plumbing. It, it's so much more than that. There's counseling often and potentially psych, uh, psychiatric or psychologic therapy that needs to be done. Uh, Ron, real quick, um, how, would you, how would you follow these patients with imaging? Uh, is there imaging that you need to use to follow up or is it purely clinical? I think you have to start with clinical follow-up and monitor these patients based on all the things that Neil was saying. What are their, what's their pain immediately after I follow these patients pretty closely? I bring them back usually two weeks, four weeks, three months, six months, uh, and then a year. And I'm monitoring their symptoms using VAS pain scores broken down. I'm trying to incorporate some of these other components and measures um, so that we can get more information about what's going on with these patients. I'll often do a point of care ultrasound, and I'm very lucky that I have, much like other people on this uh, podcast, have an RVT available to us in the office, which means I have an ultrasound in every room. So I can quickly on my own put an ultrasound on and evaluate to see if I see any pelvic varices um, remaining in the pelvis by ultrasound. If I see uh, residual persistent refluxing uh, ovarian vein, or if they're continuing to have symptoms after a prior ovarian vein embolization to reevaluate their iliac vein at that point and see, am I seeing internal iliac vein reflux and signifying maybe that obstruction is something we need to now approach as a staged visit. So I think to summarize, I think it's important to follow them clinically. If they're doing better, there's probably not much you need to do in, in any way with imaging. Um, but then if they are continuing to have pain and you're still searching for a reason, then you need to use imaging. Um, and I, again, start with ultrasound, just like I do at the initial workup and only move on to other tools uh, like MRI and CT if I'm not able to visualize it with ultrasound. 
Thanks, Fran. Um, we're going to move along. Um, everybody that does this and, and sees and treats these patients realizes the significant issues with carrier coverage um, for their treatment. Mark, uh, what do you do to deal with reimbursement issues uh, with these patients? Well, Ron, I, I've, uh, I've had some success with just appeals, and I, I have a fairly standardized uh, appeal letter that you know, is, is pretty evidence-based. It goes through the literature and, and, and how often that is successful really depends on, you know, if it's a rigorous exclusion from the, the very top um, of a carrier, it's probably not going to carry much weight. On the other hand, if the um, person who's reviewing it has some latitude to, uh, to decide, that often is very helpful. Um, so I would suggest if you're really making this part of your practice is to generate a letter that it's not standardized and that you can um, you know, substitute the patient's clinical details and imaging findings in it, but does include you know, a review of the relevant literature, the one randomized trial that's been done. Um, now, I haven't done it yet, but we'll include the DeGlorio trial that Neil discussed in it, as well as the recommendations of the AVF um, uh, Venus guidelines um, suggesting that it is recommended as a 2B recommendation. And as I said, if, if it's a rigorous policy exclusion, it's not going to have much effect. But if the, if the medical reviewer has some latitude, I, I've found that to be very successful. Kathy, how have you been dealing with this in your practice? So I, I agree with Mark that there's some, some policies where there's really not a lot you can do. But what I have found helpful, in addition to what Mark said, is a patient letter, a letter from the patient that documents impact on their quality of life. Um, and I've found that sometimes that is what changes things. It also... Uh, has the patient get some skin in the game? Um, you know that that uh, I think that the insurers realize that it's really patient driven, um, and so I think that having them help with the appeal is a good thing um, to do, and it also makes them realize you know what you're doing during the appeal it makes them appreciate that. Neil, the I, I agree with what both had said, in fact, I, I hadn't heard about the letter from the patient, and I think that would resonate very well, having been on some of these calls with some of the medical directors who are really looking for, in many cases, ways to try to help the patient. I do really believe that. But what has helped a lot, um, and I've heard this from a number of different people, is a letter probably much like what Mark and Kathy are talking about that was developed by SIR. Um, SIR created something um, based on some things that were written in the literature. And I, I helped uh, edit it a bit. And it's been apparently well-received um, by the membership in the context of being able to send this document out to medical um, insurers and getting a favorable outcome. There have been practices, um, university and private practices, where they would rarely be able to get... Um, things approved and, and things have uh, been, been changed as a result of that. So um, sometimes societal resources are helpful and, and that's certainly one that I'm aware of. Neil, as someone ha who has used uh, that letter, I thank you. Um, it's, it is an enormous help. Um, and one thing uh, that I, I'll just add to this before we finish up with the last question is that 
it is your right to be able to speak to a physician reviewer. Um, Mark is absolutely correct that if it's a if it's a policy coming down from the top, you're not going to have a whole lot of success. And I've actually had a patient retire from their job to get treatment for it um, so that they could change to Medicare. Um, but, you know, there are things that you can write in your letter. For example, if they're advocating for laparoscopy, for example, you can write back saying that doing a surgical procedure for something that has been clearly diagnosed and has uh, consensus support from at least a few expert societies probably isn't all that ethical. So um, it, there's there's much to be done, but I think uh, the, the work that uh, Neil and others have done have, have really made a difference in getting some of these patients covered. We're going to finish up, um, and uh, really everyone on this podcast is involved in critical research efforts. I'm going to start with Ron, and then I want to go, go one by one through the panel to give uh, to have everybody give their contribution and their sense about the research needs. But Ron, what are the research efforts that are underway that you are involved with and others on this call are involved with to answer the critical questions in this disease? Well, I think as we were alluding to throughout the entire podcast, there are lots of questions we need to answer. And Mark and Neil and Kathy have already spent a good amount of time and put together great publications and uh, trying to identify the patient selection component of this. And that with the SVP classification scheme, and I'll let Mark talk more about that in detail, is going to be an important piece to this so that we can identify different subgroups, let's say, or different patient populations that may or may not benefit from interventions. The next component to this is trying to identify the best metric or tool for assessing patients' pain as well as outcomes from intervention. Um, and Neil's working hard and hopefully we'll have something very soon, and I'm sure Neil will comment on this as well, um, having work done to uh, put together a good disease-specific quality of life tool that we can utilize to assess these patients. And then lastly, I think to go after the insurance barriers that we have already, many of those come up from uh, lack of randomized controlled data. So once we have all of these components in place um, to have appropriate patient selection, appropriate metrics to monitor outcomes of these patients, we can then do a nice, large randomized trial uh, proving efficacy of our interventions. Mark, uh, Ron mentioned the SVP uh, project. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, th I think one of the things um, that we've suffered from, Krishna, and I, I, I don't um, speak of it negatively, I think it's one of the exciting parts about pelvic venous disease is, you know, pelvic venous disease is where um, arterial disease was 40 years ago and lower extremity venous disease was 20 years ago. Um, although these disorders have been around for a long time and probably recognized since the 50s, nobody's really devoted much academic um, uh, thought to them, you know, really until the last five years or so. And, and I think the SVP instrument is, is a, the first attempt to really bring um, some rationale to the field behind, beyond just referring to these as, as a bunch of vague syndromes. And, you know, that sort of overlaps with the insurance coverage issue because, you know, how can you really cite, criticize some of the insurance companies for um, when we're talking about some vague pelvic venous congestion syndrome that overlaps with a May Thurner syndrome that overlaps with a nutcracker syndrome? And it's just this alphabet soup of um, sort of silly syndromes. 
And the SVP instrument is an effort to sort of bring some systematic classification of these disorders that's very much in line with SEAT for the lower extremity venous disorders. So we can really be on the same page as, as we're talking about the same group of patients, that is a patient with chronic pelvic pain who's resulted who that's resulting from primary ovarian vein incompetence versus the, the more rare patient that's resulting from iliac vein compression versus the even more rare patient that's suffering from left renal vein compression. And to just um, to bring some order to this whole field, which I think is the first step, number one, in defining patient populations um, for randomized trials, as Ron was talking about, in defining patients that um, populations that you're going to develop outcome instruments for. The outcome instrument for a patient with leg symptoms from an iliac vein compression may be very different, well, will be very different than the patient with primary chronic pelvic pain who has no leg symptoms. Um, so I think the SVP instrument is really the first attempt to bring some order to this field. It's been accepted um, by the Journal of Astro Surgery, Vein and Lymphatic Disorders um, on December 5th, and hopefully is going to be um, published concurrently in JBS veins and lymphatics and in um, phlebology. Um, I'm hopeful that it'll be in January or February, should be available in an electronic version before then. And I'd just like to, you know, everybody who's listening, it is a fairly complicated system that you're going to have to read a few times. But the American Vein and Lymphatic Society has developed a, a, an application both for an iPhone and an Android platform that you'll be able to download um, very soon after publication of the manuscript and start applying this um, on your phone, which hopefully should make it much easier to apply in the future um, to that. So I think the SVP instrument is really the first step to everything that Ron talked about um, with randomized trials and outcome instruments. Mark, I can speak, I think, for everyone on this podcast. So the minute you put something that's usable on a smartphone, the much more likely that it is actually to be used and we can gather meaningful data. So I applaud your efforts on that. Um, I will be the first, hopefully the first to download it. So uh, Neil, can you talk to us a little bit about your uh, the QOL project that Ron had mentioned? Yeah, great. No, I think uh, there are uh, a number of items that need to be done before we get involved in clinical trials. I think part of the problem was the heterogeneity in the patient populations. And that was the you know, the SVP tool was was uh, really needed, and I think it's going to go a long way, much like CPAS in the lower extremities, to defining patient populations so that we can both communicate clinically uh, more rationally and also um, uh, have better populations uh, that are clearly defined for, for research. The other tool that Ron pointed out, and I think has been was pointed out by a couple of people, is is um, trying to develop something a little bit more meaningful um, in terms of the impact of the disease of pelvic venous disorders on patients who have chronic pelvic pain. And, uh, and that's the, the effort that, uh, that Kush has asked me to talk about. And we're doing this in, in concert with gynecologists. And I think that's really important, partly because um, we need the right patients to assess what's meaningful. Um, uh, and we need to make sure we've got um, patients um, who've been um, fully worked up to make sure that the venous uh, component of the pelvic, pelvic, the chronic pelvic pain is is an important part of their problem. Um, but I think that is the other major endpoint that has been pointed out as being 
um, somewhat heterogeneous in our literature. Um, the first being the patient selection and the SVP tool will solve that. And the second will be to identify meaningful change, which doesn't, doesn't just uh, affect the domain of pain, but affects multiple domains, including psychosocial behavior, sexual um, uh, symptomatology, and, and others. Um, and so we'll need those. And we definitely are in need of studies with comparison arms. We, I think we're past the period of just looking at case series. You know, if we're going we're gonna to try to prove the value of what we do in the venous system with regard to pelvic venous disorders, we're going to need to um, do studies where um, we compare to, to other um, areas. The placebo effect in many um, uh, domains has been proven to be quite high, and uh, we need to show that what's being done uh, is different than a placebo effect. Very important work, Neil. And Kathy, we're going to wrap up with you. Any concluding thoughts on research needs, uh, how we can address our knowledge gaps? It's, it's, I think it's hard to, to add anything to what's already been said. It's hard to go last. So instead, what I'm going to say is what can the listener do uh, if they are someone that's not involved in clinical research? And I actually think that what they can do is learn the SVP classification and start using it or documenting it on their patients. I've started doing that just to practice, uh, to get more used to it. And I found that it really helps me to think about my patients in a very systematic way. And so it's helped my um, kind of being consistent with these patients to be putting a classification on each of them. It really helps my thinking. So that's what I would recommend that your list, that the listeners of this podcast, if they're not involved with research, that they do that. And it's going to become much how... If somebody says to you, I've got this patient SEEP clinical class 4B and gives you some other details, it's a language you can understand and you can picture in your head who that patient is. I think the same thing's going to happen with SVP as long as everybody gets on board and uh, becomes familiar with it. So that's my recommendation. I mean, Kathy, yeah, I do apologize. Going last always is difficult, but I think you make an absolutely critical point that if we're doing all this work, it has to be broadly adoptable and generalizable. Otherwise, it sort of is um, consigned to only live in specialty centers. And I mean, there are people suffering from this disease all over the world. And so we need to develop instruments ultimately that can be broadly used in general practice. So with that, uh, I want to thank my, my panel, uh, Neil. Ron, Kathy, and Mark, uh, you guys have been absolutely excellent, and you are the world's experts on this, and I've learned so much from all of you, and uh, thank you for being on here and uh, sharing, your, sharing your experiences and uh, your, and your experiences and, and how we can move forward in taking care of uh, these patients. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by Radcliffe Vascular and is sponsored by Medtronic. To view the series, head to radcliffevascular.com forward slash vascular podcast. You can also find us on all well-known podcast platforms and follow us on Twitter at Radcliffe Vascu. Thanks for listening.